Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Jack Roster-Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And we are here with the very first episode in our special series on sonnets to close out Poetry Month 2020. Uno! I like that trumpet. How appropriately quasi-medieval. Ooh, foreshadowing for the episode. Uh, nothing like a good fanfare to get things going right. Um, you need a little fanfare for Sonnet Week. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so we're doing a week of episodes all about the form of the sonnet. We've talked about sonnets a whole bunch of different times on this podcast. Um, we will make sure to be posting regularly about those past episodes on all of our social media channels and may even link a couple of them in the description to this episode. Um, but today, to get things started off right, we will be covering all aspects of the sonnet and the ways that it has been deployed over the hundreds of years that it has been one of the most popular poetic forms. But... We're going to start at the beginning with some definitions of what the sonnet is and how it got going. It's its origins back, back, back in the way, way back days. Connor, before we got into this series, did you know the deep and storied history of the sonnet went back just as far as it did? I knew it was old, but let me tell you, Jack, I didn't know it was that old because I knew of a guy named Petrarch and he's an old Italian guy. I didn't know how old he was, and then I didn't know it came. It's he didn't create it, and so it's even older than I thought. I mean, Jesus Christ! <laughs> it's not as old as that guy, but it's pretty old. <laughs> he he came before the sonnet, after Jesus, and after Muhammad. Yeah, uh, before the Mormons, considerably before the Mormons. Much before the Mormons. Way before, the Angel Moroni post-dates the sonnet. Well, the coming of the Angel Moroni. I don't actually know how old Moroni is. Um, but anyway, yeah. So sonnets <laughs> classically are 14 lines and have a rhyme scheme. And they got started a very long time ago. So they got started under the reign of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. And for anybody who's sort of charting that onto history, you've got 
the Holy Roman Empire, uh, you know, our, our good friend Charlemagne was declared emperor of the Romans in the year 800 by Pope Leo. So this comes about 400 years after the establishment of the Holy Roman Empire officially. Um, and that geographical area is kind of the only really important part about that, which is like parts of what are now France, Germany, and Italy. Um, and so while Frederick II was the emperor, and he's sort of like a writer emperor, uh, he was he knew like six languages, he was really into that stuff, and so fostered kind of a literary court, which included Giacomo or Jacopo de Lentini, who is widely credited as the creator of the sonnet. And he lived from about 1220 to 1270. So the sonnet was created like the second half of the 1200s or the 13th century, because I always get confused between hundreds and centuries. So I'll just say them both. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of like where the, the germinations of the sonnet come in the very late medieval period and right kind of a couple hundred years before the Renaissance fully started kicking into gear in Italy. Two things. Uh, actually, one thing. Um, the Holy Roman Empire, when I watch Jeopardy, I never get it right. It's always the Holy Roman Empire, or it's always what is the Holy Roman Empire, and I is that never... Is wrong because you don't phrase it as a question? That's my first wrong turn, but then I'm not even, you know suddenly I realize I'm on a bike and I need to be in a car. I mean, I'm like way off track. So I'll tell you that. Yeah, but I will say it's interesting because that is old. All right. It's, it's really, really old. Like so old. Like we think Shakespeare's old. This is way older than Shakespeare. This is like almost twice as old as Shakespeare. Yeah. Which is and kind of why, like, every after a certain point, I think, like, pre-1850, everything is just kind of like, oh, it's all old stuff, just in terms of how, like, our brains process that kind of time. And it's like, nah, this is a lot of 1850s ago, you know? Like, it's pre-colonial. Like, isn't it? It's like, they haven't even, like, started, like, all the bad, evil stuff that Europe's about to do, they're just doing it to themselves yet, pretty much, you know? Like, um, anyway, yeah, this it's, is still sort of like, you know, the tail end of the age of empires. I mean, this is closer. If you charted this in time, it's like closer in time to a lot of things that you would think of as being fairly ancient than it is to us today. Like it's, it's almost 800 years ago, 800 years before this was like, the Roman Empire was going on and the various Islamic empires were spreading across Northern Africa and like, which even during this time, they still existed. And like, it's, it's a, it's a really, it's a long time for a poetic form to have stick, stuck around, like kind of pretty much intact too, which is interesting. I mean, we'll get into all the ways that it's, you know, changed over time and as it moved from place to place, but like it's 14 lines and it rhymes and 400 years later shakespeare was writing 14 lines and they rhymed <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's hard to think of sometimes how old things are um and like i don't know it's just it's one of those that's it's an interesting part of forms because 
they're like uh this thing that has a history and like a const a continuity through time like in the same way that like a play you know like a shakespeare play was performed during his time but continues to be performed today and it's like it's just very interesting to me to like think about it in that way whereas like some some things like a particular poem like a specific poem it is what it is and you can read it again but that this form is like this nebulous thing but it's somehow began and then and it's still i mean that that's why i'm excited about sonnet week because the sonnet i fucking love sonnets they're so cool some of the best contemporary poetry that i read they're just they're sonnets um and they're doing like new things and they're messing around but like they're they're still working with a similar core set of like formal constraints and stuff that got it going in you know pre-renaissance italy holy roman empire stuff old old stuff um and that's pretty cool i like that that's super cool i mean we'll be pulling out some of the threads of like how that journey happens over time but i think not only is some of the most interesting contemporary poetry getting done in the form of a sonnet, but some of that history then informs what makes that work so interesting, not just that it is so old, but that over time a form can accrue meaning outside of just what is inside of it. The form itself comes to mean a great deal because of the ways that it has been present for, at this point, almost 800 years. I was thinking about it in relation to like the novel, which has been around a fraction of the amount of time as the sonnet has, but you know, it's a form that kind of struck a, a very significant chord. And there's a lot of reasons for that that are perhaps extra textual that have to do with how the marketplace works um, for how works are like produced. But at the same time, a lot of the most exciting contemporary fiction work is being done in novels. And it is in the same way, like playing with the constraints of the novel form and adding, subtracting, changing, and just as there are, and we'll discuss different ways that the sonnet gets sort of changed so that there's a Shakespearean sonnet or a Petrarchan sonnet. There's an epistolary novel and there's different points of view in novels. So it's it's a form that in, in part works so well because it can be uh, like, played with in the hands of the artist and the basic form remains but what it contains can really change a great deal um, shall we shall we go all the way back to to those ancient days in italy Ooh. and and hear a Giacomo de lentini sonnet let me hear some de lentini all right this is sonetto 26 um, and i will note and i apologize ahead of time if i mispronounce this name I'm doing the best I can, having tried to find somebody say it and failing, um, that the translation of this was done by Leo Zutuele. So this is Sonetto 26. I've seen it rain on sunny days and seen the darkness flash with light and even lightning turn to haze. Yes, frozen snow turn warm and bright and sweet things taste of bitterness and what is bitter taste most sweet. 
and enemies their love confess, and good, close friends no longer meet. Yet stranger things I've seen of love, who healed my wounds by wounding me. The fire in me he quenched before, the life he gave was the end thereof. The fire that slew eluded me, once saved from love, love now burns more. And mm. I found that on a website called the Society of Classical Poets, where you can also read it in the original Sicilian. So we'll definitely link to that for anyone who actually knows Sicilian. I am not well-versed enough to actually read it. I wish I was. I apologize, dear listeners. Um, but, like, it's quite a sonnet, and it might be hundreds of years old, but, like, literally today in Vermont, just on a very literal level, it was both sunny and dark and snowing <laughs> and warm all over the course of the day. Like it's above freezing, but there was freezing rain and snow that was happening while it was sunny out. And then there were dark clouds in the distance. Like it was literally the first stanza of this poem was happening in my life out the window this morning, almost 800 years later, which is like, whoa. Hmm. Yeah. And this sonnet has... Many of the, I guess, like, I don't know, sort of tropes or themes or elements that still remain pretty common. Um, I mean, love is obviously kind of the big general theme that sonnets often, you know, um, explore. Um, and there, but there's also, you know, and then there's, of course, there's the formal structure and it, you know, you, you can hear it, especially because this is like a, an English translation that, that tries to reproduce the, also the same, like, you know, rhyme scheme that was in the Italian, but you can hear the light and bright and sweet and meat and we'll, we can get into all that, but, um, you know, it also has, I think, um, one thing that I'm just noticing, I feel like there's this thing of like paradox, this life giving death or death giving life thing that comes up a lot in sonnets, definitely in like Shakespeare and stuff. But like this last stanza, you know, yet stranger things I've seen of love who healed my wounds by wounding me. Um, that kind of like contradiction of, of, which also is so true to love. And there's a kind of historical, um, and, and I don't know as much about it, but like, you know, there's, there's a, the courtly love is a, a big part about it. You know a little more about how that sort of plays out. Courtly love comes from this kind of the end of the Middle Ages period. And the basics of it are it is a knight who is tied up in the chivalric code, who has this unrequited love for an exalted woman of the court who is usually married. So it's not like an actual uh, like sexual desire kind of love. It's not particularly sensual. It's this chivalric courtly quote unquote love that is um, like an exalted woman from a distance. And there's a reason, and we'll get to this in our episode where we talk a little bit more about Petrarch, but like as one of the kind of big early masters of the genre it's no accident that petrarch falls into that because of his own relationship to that idea and that version of love definitely courses through 
kind of the the early years of the sonnet as a form they weren't they didn't have to be poems about love but it is a strong theme and i think some of the contradictions inherent in that idea of courtly love are the ones that you can hear coming through in this poem and that then kind of imbue the sonnet with this feeling of a poem or of a form that can hold those contradictions about other things as well there's a reason that courtly love fit it so well in those early years because there is a contradiction it's this intense love that is just kind of being thrown out there and it's almost expected to be unrequited and it's like this you know perfect idea of femininity that the knight can dedicate himself to and then go out and act upon yeah and yeah just kind of like returning to the poem too you know in this poem like the first eight lines are kind of like I've seen it I've seen these weird contradictions happen you know I've seen it rain on sunny days and darkness flash with light and um you know sweet things taste of bitterness and the bitter taste most sweet and enemies confess their love and all these things and then there's like even though I've seen all that like love fucking weird you know like yet stranger things i've seen of love who healed my wounds by wounding me you know the fire in me he quenched before the life he gave was the end thereof you know that life and end kind of coming together um and so there's this and this kind of like sort of as you were saying internal thing uh people often talk about sonnets as not just about love, but this this kind of self-reflective and kind of argument, this but that sort of like internal wrestling that's happening. Um, and, you know, you see that in this poem, okay, a sonnet is like a little box made in a certain kind of way, or it's a little structure or a house or whatever. Um, and there's like a few key elements that, you know, uh, you know, that we've mentioned, you know, we have the rhyme scheme, we have the 14 lines we have, and then there's often a turn. And so in this poem, you have like four lines and four lines, sunny days, flash with light, turn to haze, warm and bright, taste of bitterness, most sweet, love confess, no longer meet. Um, and and that's also like the first extended part of the thought, right? Like I've seen some crazy shit. Um, so the the rhymes kind of do the binding, like they're the nails. You could think of them as the nails to a box or glue or something. It's like, it's what keeps one part together. Cause when you're, you hear the, it's, you know, in, in a, in a very unpoetic, rudimentary way a rhyme is just like an easy way to remember something um it's like you know sweet and meat they go together i remember that you know now i whatever and so I mean, in, in a like poem that's why we get songs stuck in our heads exactly you know like that the, um, the juicy hook the the really tantalizing uh melody is part of it but also it's that it rhymes exactly um and so all poems, you know, make use of sound in that way, probably to some extent. Um, but especially the traditional sonnets, 
they use the rhyme scheme to kind of like outline and and like uh mark off this is my first thought <laughs> and this is my next thought and so then the next thought is the six lines with the yet stranger things i've seen of love and we get you know love wounding me before so those none of those uh none of those three lines rhyme but then those three come back again in the six thereof rhymes with love eluded me wounding me now burns more quenched before um and so the six final lines are bound together as well um and and so that's that's almost what becomes the petrarchan rhyme scheme then you have the turn which is sort of or the volta um which is kind of helped by the rhyme scheme which is just the kind of if you have an 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 argument or an idea or a thought you know it's just the the twist in the thought um and you know that this one's really clear where it's i've seen a lot of crazy shit uh enemies their love confess yet stranger things i've seen of love um and that's where you get the volta you get the turn um and it's and the turn is sort of is is um made clear also sonically by the way that the rhyme scheme works because the first eight lines go together with their rhymes and the six last lines go together with their rhymes and you have a tighter kind of rhyme scheme going on in the first eight lines than you do in the last six so you so like also the just the feel of it changes along with the rhyme scheme it's two different sets of rhymes but it's also just once you've kind of laid the groundwork with the first eight lines after you get through the volta you come into that last section and you're kind of in the space of like the idea of the of the sonnet yeah i mean that's kind of like those are all the building blocks basically um so and, this is yeah. like way this is way way back at the beginning not all sonnets we alluded to this earlier like now there are a lot of poets contemporary poets working in the form of the sonnet who are doing more experimental stuff let's hear what a sonnet sounds like now whoa okay jack i got the sonnet for you okay um hit me hit me with that sonnet <laughs> okay um this one is by the poet terence hayes who's an incredible contemporary poet he actually released a book entirely sonnets they're called american sonnets for my past and future assassin um came out just a few years ago this particular one was published in poetry magazine in 2017 i think um and yeah i'll just i'll read it and um i think you'll get the idea um so this is American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin by Terence Hayes. I lock you in an American sonnet that is part prison, part panic closet, a little room in a house set aflame. 
I lock you in a form that is part music box, part meat grinder to separate the song of the bird from the bone. I lock your persona in a dream inducing sleeper hold while your better selves watch from the bleachers. I make you both Jim and Crow here. As the crow, you undergo a beautiful catharsis trapped one night in the shadows of the gym. As the gym, the feel of crow shit dropping to your floors is not unlike the stars falling from the pep rally posters on your walls. I make you a box of darkness with a bird in its heart. Voltas of acoustics, instinct, and metaphor. It is not enough to love you. It is not enough to want you destroyed. Damn. So obviously the sonnet did not stop being a really effective poetic form for containing contradictions and exploring contradictions. Um, and I think what you feel in this more contemporary sonnet is that other formal elements from the early sonnets can drop away. Like there is not the same clear rhyme scheme. There's a lot of internal sound resonances. There's internal rhymes. Um, and there are moments of, you know, hints towards more straightforward rhyme. But for the most part, that element has kind of moved away. But you still have a turn. You still have the sonnet as a form to explore, you know, opposing ideas or contradictory notions and i think it's encapsulated in the the last two lines um or really the last two sentences i should say which straddle the last two lines it is not enough to love you it is not enough to want you destroyed which if you have a poem called american sonnet um, or i lock you in an american sonnet that is part prison you know the titles are sort of taken from the first lines because it's from the the whole book um but yeah, it's uh, it's got the sort of essence of the sonnet form all over it, even if some of those original formal elements have dropped away. It's it's quite something. Definitely, definitely, and it it um, it speaks to um, just to kind of like reference one of it. It makes me think of uh, you know, we talked about sonnets with uh, Doctor Hall's robbins um last year and we um and and she has written a book called form of contention forms of contention and she has written a book called forms of contention um and it it basically tracks the the lineage in the tradition of of, of basically the black sonnet tradition um in america and, you know, one of the things that I found very interesting in her work um, and that I think really comes through in this poem is there's a kind of formal part of the sonnet of the being trapped um, where you're, you're stuck in a kind of way. Um, and there's a contradiction to being trapped. Um, and that sort of aspect of the sonnet has had uh, black poets since, you know, um, 
almost the beginning um, have like really explored and pushed that aspect of the sonnet in a way that's like especially resonant for um, for you know like Black American experiences um, and you know you you like a, a, just in terms of allusion and reference it's it's all here in terms of you know like locking you in American sonnet that is part prison um, like all the car like carceral mass incarceration. Um, then I make you both Jim and Crow here. Um, and Jim is spelled like, you know, a gym you go to work out in, but there's the obvious like Jim Crow, um, like illusion there. Um, and, you know, it's, it's also this, this kind of like the whole premise of American Sonnet for my past and future. <laughs> assassin is is this like someone's <laughs> someone's trying to kill the speaker trying to assassinate him um both from the past there's a past one and there's a future one and so there's this that kind of being um trapped in a relationship with an with your assassin um that i think like has the uh, like describes a the particular sort of like violent tension of being black in America that I think Terence Hayes is exploring. But it's also there's all these contradictions of like the parts like the little room in a house set aflame, um, part music box, part meat grinder. Which itself feels a little bit like a reference to the fact that, you know, sonetto or sonnet literally means little song. And it does come from way back in those long, long ago Italian days. It was taking not the exact form, but spinning off of existing forms of like folk expression at the times and kind of creating a formal structure out of them. And so when you say that the form is part music box, it has always been part music box. Um, that like is a nod even back into the ways that the poetic form going back through all those years can feel like a kind of formal element that is like a prison. Exactly. Um, and this is, this is not related to this poem, but I, but for some reason it makes me think about that, but I, there's a great article that we'll link to that's just called learning the sonnet just kind of talks about the craft of it. And I'll just read this quote. Cause I, I feel like it, um, contextualizes things really well. Um, the sonnet's tight rhyme scheme and metrical regularity emphasize its musicality, but the sonnet is also thought of as the first poetic form that was intended to be read silently, as opposed to be, as opposed to performed and shared. Um, it's the first quote lyric of self-consciousness or of the self in conflict, according to Paul. Oppenheimer. Um, as such, the form consists of two parts, often called the proposition and the resolution. Dividing them is the volta or the turn. Um, thus, a problem or a question is often presented. Um, and then via the pivot made by the turn resolve, they're given a new perspective in the second. Um, so I think there's like the, the also the tension between like like being a music box, like not just a purely oral song um, that, it, that it 
it's it's in that strange printed read silently and also like really highlighting the music of it um and this one is interesting because it it um it kind of turns <sighs> the turn is interesting to find in this i also like that both music boxes and meat grinders mechanically function similarly like you wind up a music box or you crank the handle on a meat grinder and you could even say that to make both of them work you have to turn something and then there's the turn that happens in the sonnet i think all three of those pieces working together are very very cool um because mm. there's not only the various like uh you know kind of references to the sonnet or to the idea of a sonnet but there's also this very physical and grounded idea that is happening at the same time because a music box is a box a meat grinder is a box shaped object that mechanically functions in a similar way and then they both turn like a sonnet which is what we are experiencing ourselves through in in this poem which i think is very neat yeah definitely definitely um, yeah definitely I feel like the turn for me, I like, I don't know. I don't know that there is a single easy to find turn. I, for me, the turn is when it says I make you both Jim and crow here. Mm. So it's sort of six and eight for the mm -hmm. lines for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I also find that Jim and crow separated out is really interesting because I the places I go with that immediately are the gym gym is like the way that black bodies are fetishized particularly through athletics and then also commodified through athletic leagues um, and crow is like the entertainment industry and and singing and performing and so it's two different types of performance but it's ways that um, like very often have been pointed to as like the way for certain exceptional individuals to escape out of you know, whatever container the country constructs for them. And you see right before Jim is referenced, you have this reference to while our, while your better selves watch from the bleachers, introducing the sports metaphors. But then even later on, as the gym, the feel of crow shit dropping on your floors is not unlike the stars falling from the pep rally posters on your walls. There's this like extended sports element. Um and then the the sort of the darkness with a bird at its heart brings back the bird stuff but just those kind of two you know as the crow you undergo a beautiful catharsis trapped one night in the shadows of the gym like this transformation through performance that can happen um which again yeah. is like this kind of rubbing up against some of the the contradictions inherent there where like certain individuals can attain wealth or can you know attain certain things, but still being trapped within an oppressive system or then being tokenized, fetishized, all that sort of part of it, as well as the literal reference to obviously Jim Crow laws. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> my God, he's so, as you're talking about, it, I'm like, oh my God, this is so, he's doing so much. It's like both Jim and Crow are being punned like with two meanings for each word i think like as the crow but then also crow shit and then like jim but then also like jim crow 
so there's like that but then then it gets to like voltas of acoustics and it's like okay on the one hand acoustics you can kind of think about the gym and the performance space and like acoustics there but then you're also like especially if we take you your reading of the turn kind of happening at i make you both jim and crow here the turn the turn is happening in the sound like the turn is happening and and the way that the the doubleness is happening because of of the jim crow pun and puns um that like voltas of acoustics is also kind of like like referring to itself <laughs> kind yeah. of you know um so ay 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 when then crazy. those voltas of acoustics <laughs> instinct and metaphor are kind of echoing around in whatever space is created by saying i make you both jim and crow here which in that here feels like terence hayes is marking out this sonnet as the space where we are and all of these meanings are bouncing around in there and they are the voltas of acoustics instinct and metaphor and they are all of the other things but like that space that's being referenced where that kind of turn of sound and ricochet can happen is this sonnet that is being claimed reclaimed recontextualized and built out um over the course of it which is kind of fascinating and then yeah with the last lines it's not enough to love you it's not enough to want you destroyed become about america and about sonnets and about so much more because you know the conflicted relationship you might have to a poetic form like the sonnet that is so old so storied and so you know for so long was aligned with a very particular kind of gatekeepery restrictive academic poetics that becomes something to maybe love the poets who have written sonnets and some of the sonnets they have written while still feeling like you want to destroy some of those formal strictures that held poetry a little bit stagnant at some points, you know, and worked against innovation and change. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. This, this is really a good one. Should we read it again? Yeah, let's do it. All right. This is American Sonnet for my past and future assassin. By Terrence Hayes. I lock you in an American sonnet that is part prison, part panic closet, a little room in a house set aflame. I lock you in a form that is part music box, part meat grinder to separate the song of the bird from the bone. I lock your persona in a dream inducing sleeper hold while your better selves watch from the bleachers. I make you both Jim and Crow here. As the crow, you undergo a beautiful catharsis trapped one night in the shadows of the gym. As the gym, the feel of crow shit dropping to your floors is not unlike the stars falling from the pep rally posters on your walls. I make you a box of darkness with a bird in its heart. Voltas of acoustics, instinct and metaphor it is not enough to love you. It is not enough to want you destroyed. And that is going to do it for our first episode of Sonnet Week. And we will be back tomorrow 
That's right, we will be back as soon as tomorrow with another episode in which we dive into that most essential of sonnet elements, the Volta. The Volta. Ah. It's all about to turn. Volta, Volta. Ooh, baby, you make me Volta. <laughs> hey, Connor, what's the poet's favorite Olympic event? Oh, no. What is it, Jack? The pole Volta. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Got him again. Brutal. Brutal. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossner Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Close Talking. See you next time. Mm-hmm.